Amen. Well, hey, everybody. I just want to uh, continue what Pastor Jason's been talking about and talk not only of the season of Lent, but the fasts within it and invite you to fast with us. Um, we, we refer to Lent around here not as a law, but as a gift. We, we mean that. It's meant to be a help, not some sort of a weight or some sort of religious hoop to jump through as if that's what you should do. Um, and so the guide that we're handing out includes within it uh, weekly fasts throughout the 40-day season of Lent. And really what is offered in that is an opportunity to commune more intentionally with Jesus. So we're going to have a slide up, where I believe, that will show the weekly fasts. Um, week one will be a fast of food. Uh, week two will be a fast from TV and movies. We're going to include Netflix and all of those streaming services as well. Week three will be a social media internet fast. Week four, do we have a slide with the fasts or, or no? No, okay. Week five, it'll be in uh, the guides as well. Week five, uh, week four will be caffeine and sweets. Things are getting worse here. Week five will be uh, fast from radio and music. Uh, week six will be uh, fast from shopping for non-essentials. And week seven will be a fast from sleep. Now, I don't mean an all-week-long fast from sleep, you'll die. But um, weeks one and seven are sort of these uh, not expected to be absolute fasts, but opportunities to fast uh, as you see fit. So for example, the, the fast for week one, the fasts begin on Ash Wednesday. This Wednesday, we have Ash Wednesday services, one in the morning, one in the evening. Choose whichever you're able to come to, and the fasts begin that day. Now, this is the shortest we, uh, fast week in Lent. It's just Wednesday to Sunday. And then from then on, it'll be Sunday to the, or uh, Monday to the next Sunday. But traditionally, um, Lent is actually 46 days, and the Sunday is not a fast day, it's a feast day. And so uh, the fast will go from Wednesday to Saturday from food, and then the fast will go from Monday to Saturday from TV and movies, and then I guess if you feast on the Sunday, it's like binge watch something, I don't know, but, but that's the idea behind it all. When it comes to sleep on week seven, what we mean by that is... Um, Maybe set your alarm an hour or two earlier than you normally would and use that time to commune with Jesus. Like use that time to open up the word and to pray or go to bed an hour or two later than you normally would on the week of the, uh, the sleeping fast and spend that time with Jesus in prayer, in communing with him. Um, when it comes to food, maybe it's a meal a day for the, that half week or maybe it's um, for one entire day within that week or maybe it's the whole time and that's for you to determine um, there's also an opportunity to continue to build the fasts upon one another. This, this, is, this is what we refer to as the brownie points in heaven fast. No, it's not. <laughs> but where you have the food fast and maybe it's a meal a day for that first week, but then as you go to t uh, no TV and movies the next week, you're still continuing to skip a meal a day. So the idea behind the, f and then you carry it on, carry it on. Uh, the, the, the idea behind the fast is not that this makes you a more exceptional Christian. The opportunity is that in the ache, in the like missing of the hunger pangs, it reminds you, oh, I want to fix my gaze on Jesus. The cross is coming. 
I want to dwell on his sacrifice. I want to dwell on who he is. So if you can remember all the fasts I just told you, why don't you turn to someone close to you and tell, tell them which fast week you would find the most difficult? Go ahead. We, uh, we, we talked about this. We, we encouraged our staff, hey, participate in this. And the like unanimous sound in the room was like, oh, that caffeine week, man. The no coffee. What? How are we going to do this? That was resounding. Um, so whenever week four lands in, let, don't even call the office. Like we're going to be, we're going to be utter disasters that week. But listen, again, I want, I want to come back to it. This whole idea of Lent is an opportunity to turn off some of the clutter, some of the noise, some of the comforts that we're accustomed to in order to go into the wilderness with Jesus a little bit more intentionally, dwelling on his sacrifice in the lead up to Easter. And a lot of the fasts are luxuries that we've grown accustomed to having. So I just want to encourage you, this will cost you a little bit, that's a good thing as you dwell on and relate to the, the, the time of Jesus in the wilderness as you look to the cross. And as we celebrate Easter Sunday together as a church, oh, the celebration, because we would have walked the journey a little bit with Jesus, dwelled on his sacrifice, dwelled on the wonder of an empty tomb, tomb of resurrection. And so I invite you to lean into that, that the Lent guide will, will give you the cues as you go, but also through social media and some of our communication will just try and indicate where we're headed as well on that. Sound good? All right, I invite you to participate. And let's be gracious to each other as we're missing out on some of what we consider our essentials in life. Now, I want to get us up to speed on our series called As Numerous as the Stars, where we are looking at uh, Abraham's faith in a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And last week, we, we embarked on the beginning of this series when God calls out Abraham and promises to bless him and make him a blessing to the whole world. This is review. This is the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 that we looked at last week. What happened there was Abraham found grace in the eyes of God, and through him all of us would find grace. Like with Noah back in Genesis chapter 6, God chose a family, but, but this time instead of choosing a family and destroying everybody else, God chose a family and said, now I'm going to bless everybody else. And, and we talked about this last week. The blessing that God was talking about was the promise of a Messiah. Galatians 3 helps us put that together. And so through Abraham's descendants, God would send a Messiah that would bless all the nations of the earth. And like Noah's ark, this Messiah would shield people from the wrath of God by taking it upon himself and then beginning a new creation, creating a, a new people no longer inclined toward evil, but inclined toward God and to what God had intended them to be. The blessing, really, in Genesis chapter 12, the blessing, really, to Abraham was salvation. It started in Abraham's house, but it extended out to the whole world. Every one of us that knows Jesus as their Savior was included in the promise that God gave to Abraham. 
that he didn't destroy our wickedness through a flood, but destroyed our wickedness by sending a savior who would be destroyed in our place so that we could have the blessing that God promised to Abraham. Incredibly, we saw when Abraham was told by God to go from his home and venture out into the unknown with nothing but the promises of God, he went. Essentially, God said to him, close your eyes and take my hand. Off we go. And Abraham did it. That was last week. Uh, a few days ago, we, uh, let, let me go back. My, my youngest son turned seven weeks ago and uh, we bought him a bike because he's growing and his little bike didn't fit him anymore. So, but it's been snowy and icy. So his bike has been sitting in a box not put together for a while. And he asked me just a few days ago, dad, would you put my bike together so I can try it out? So I was out in the garage having more trouble than I should have, but putting this bike together. And then he came out just as I was finishing up and asked if he asked if he could take it for a spin. And so he put on his helmet, he got on his bike, it was bigger and the brakes weren't on the pedals. They were on the handlebars now. And it wasn't a single speed. It's a seven speed. It's a lot of changes, pretty big for him, but his other one was too small. He'll grow into this one. He's trying it out. He's nervous and he starts to go and he's really having trouble. I'm holding the seat for him and he's not really taking off. He's fumbling. It's difficult. He gets frustrated. He gets discouraged. He says, I'm going inside the house. And he took off his helmet and he stormed off. And just as he was leaving, I realized, oh, I hadn't put air in the tires yet. <laughs> like, poor guy. He's super discouraged still. He hasn't tried it yet again. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Pastor John Cornelson and I uh, got in my car and drove to Merritt. We were meeting uh, a guy for lunch there for a meeting and as we were driving there in the winter, we were driving down the Coquihalla and we were approaching a snowplow and, and uh, it was going very slow. And so I, I said to John, like, think I should pass this snowplow? And John was like, I don't know. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll pass the snowplow. I go to pass, I'm, I'm passing this snowplow and there's a certain point when the snowplow is spitting up s- snow and rocks uh, where we can't see anything. In front, we're driving down the highway, cannot see anything. I get the wipers going really fast, and we're seeing nothing at all. We're just being flooded with snow and rocks, and we and then I feel like we're drifting. So we're either like drifting towards the snowplow or we're drifting towards the median. And by God's grace, we like get through this thing, and like we were so tense. I've never heard Pastor John so quiet in my whole he just he went. He just went mute, and I was just like so tense that I had like leg aches after because I just like seized up. It was terrifying. Literally 30 seconds later, we see a sign, do not pass snowplows. It's like, ah. Our family dog was stolen on my watch. I've told that story here before and was rescued on my wife Emily's watch. Look, in every one of these instances, and I could literally tell you a thousand more, there's a common theme. I'm not the hero. Like, I am not the hero. And and, and as incredible as the faith of Abraham was in our text last week, he trips up hard in our text this week. Here's what we need to know from our text this morning. We're, We're supposed to know we're supposed to discover in the text this morning as we embark on a series about Abraham, here's what we're supposed to learn from the get-go. Abraham's not the hero of Abraham's story. 
And so let's just dive right into it and you'll very quickly see, oh yeah, Abraham's not the hero. First, we want to look at the cracks of unbelief that we see in Abraham. Let's pick up where we left off. Chapter 12 of Genesis, starting in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. He had just arrived in the land of Canaan. He'd built an altar. He'd worshiped God. We pick it up. Next verse. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, it tells us. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to, his, uh, said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are, a beautiful, are beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So here's what's going on. Abraham, who left everything to take God at his word and follow him, was immediately tested and faltered. He found himself overwhelmed by circumstances, famine in the land. So he turned his back on the land and, in a sense, turned his back on God. In in the Old Testament, over and over again, going down to Egypt is frequently the alternative to trusting in God. When we read, and so they went down to Egypt, so he went down to Egypt, they went down to Egypt, it's frequently seen as the alternative to trusting in God. Famine comes, and Abraham heads down to Egypt. There's no mention of worship. There's no no mention of conversation with God, the God who had just spoken to him and then appeared to him. No conversations. Now, we we learn later when the Israelites are freed from captivity and slavery in Egypt, they go out into the wilderness and there's so many of them, there's no way they can provide food for themselves. And they're, we're going to starve out here in this land. And God daily, miraculously provides manna for them. If God sent him to this land of promise and said that he would deliver him, said that he would bless him there, Abraham could have trusted that to be true of a God who is above the circumstances, who can work through any kind of circumstances. But he does not commune with God. He does not speak to God. He does not worship God. He bolts from God. And it's not that going down to Egypt wasn't the natural choice. Like where Canaan relied on rainfall, Egypt relied on the more consistent Nile River for irrigation. Just They, they, they had less drought consistently. And so it's just that... It's not that it wasn't a natural choice. It's just that it wasn't driven by faith. It was driven by fear. His natural logic was driven by his fears, not his faith in God. It was a reflex. It was survival mode. Abraham ventures from the region of Bethel, which, which, which literally means house of God, and heads to Egypt. So, so what we see so far is that Abraham had stopped trusting God And naturally, when you stop trusting God, you stop worshiping God. And then inevitably, your spiritual life withers. And and that's what's happening here. Of course, the opposite is also true. When you do trust in God, you will find yourself wanting to worship God. And you will find your spiritual life growing. But when Abraham stopped trusting in God's wisdom... Stopped worshiping God. He substituted God's wisdom for his own confidence in himself and his own wisdom. And here's where that got him. He determined, I'm going to go to Egypt. And as he approached Egypt, he faced a new problem in in this plan that is half-hatched and not well thought through. 
he realizes as he's about to go to Egypt, his wife was very beautiful and he was worried for his own safety. Someone's going to want her as their wife and they're going to kill me to get her. So say you're my sister. He was going where he shouldn't go, which now led him to do something he should not do. Biblical commentators tend to agree that Abraham had some sort of a plan that would buy him time uh, known as fratriarchy. It was a custom known at the time where there was where there was no father. The brother assumed legal guardianship of his sister. Some of you women are like, that would be horrendous. <laughs> Have my brother, all right, call some of these things. But this was just this ancient uh, practice. So uh, pertaining especially to obligations and responsibilities in arranging marriage on her behalf. Now, Abraham would be thinking, okay, typically this is a lengthy process, so it'll buy me time, and we can bolt out of there before he, she has to marry someone else, but it'll spare me any consequence or harm being her husband. Now, we can see Abraham had some rationale for it, but what we can also agree on, no matter what his rationalizing of it was, that it was a dangerous, selfish, despicable move. In Ephesians 5, husbands are told to lay down their lives for their bride, just as Jesus Christ laid down his life for his bride, the church. Here, Abraham does just the opposite. He lays down Sarah's life for his own sake. This is where the wisdom of Abraham has gotten him. And now we see that the cracks of unbelief are now reaching the wreckage of a flawed plan. Verse 14, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. They they, they agree, like Abraham uh, feared this uh, with reason. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. We're talking about extreme luxuries like Bentleys and things like that. To have a camel, to be given camels, was like he was given luxury upon luxury here. Now, as an aside, Sarah was probably like 60, 65 years old at this time. And so sometimes there's this tension, like what's going on that she was so stunningly beautiful at, at 65 that, that men would want to kill in order to have her, like, can this be real? Can this be true? Um, now, here's what's going on. There's, there, we, we don't really know, but different, at, it's a different time, it's a different place, different standards of beauty. We have, in our culture, really messed up standards of beauty, really. And we don't know what the standard of beauty was at that time that that made Sarah such a a beauty to people around her that they would want to kill to have her. We also know that the lifespan of the patriarchs and matriarchs at that time were twice as long as they are now. Abraham lived to 175 and Sarah to 127. So Sarah's 60s would be equivalent to our 30s and 40s. You can think about it that way. She did not have skin of a 65-year-old, I guess is what I'm, I'm saying. Flawless skin. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I can relate to Abraham. I know what it's like to have the mo- most beautiful wife in the land, you know. So. 
Here's the thing. What Abraham likely never conceived of taking place took place. He thought that maybe some Egyptian would want Sarai as his wife and kill Abraham. But what he never could have seen coming was that Pharaoh would cast his eyes on her and scoop her up into his harem of wives. Abraham's plan blew up. Abraham's plan goes worse than he could have imagined. Isn't that what sin always does? It wasn't malicious on Abraham's part. He didn't want harm to come to Sarai. The problem was that he just didn't want harm to come to him even more. What it was, was it was selfish and it was destructive and it left a wake of damage upon others, most namely Sarai, this wife of his that he was supposed to lovingly protect. In our cultural moment, we just need to hear this again. I love how real the Bible is. We can open up Genesis chapter 12 and look at a text from 4,000 years ago. And what is it saying? Men letting down women in terrible ways. Harmful, destructive, selfish ways. Any application there? But just even, even just from a, a more zoomed out view, this is what sin always does. Each one of us, the selfishness invades and we sacrifice others for the sake of our own safety, for the sake of our own pleasure, for the sake of our own good. And we leave a wake of destruction, sin that not only harms ourselves, but harms those we love around us. Here's the scene at this point. This is just the nail in the coffin. Abraham is given luxurious gifts. And Sarah is spending terrifying nights in Pharaoh's harem. And if we can just look overarchingly at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we see that God has come and brought incredible promises. Let's tune into that. How, how are those promises going? See, Abraham's plan jeopardized the land. By leaving the land of promise. Abraham's plan jeopardized his descendants. He put his wife, who could bear him a child, into harm's way. Abraham's plan jeopardized his ability to be a blessing. When in fact what has now taken place is that he's bringing harm, not blessing. You're going to see that in just a second. Abraham's plan has been an utter and harmful disaster and all at this point seems lost. But then God acts. And I believe that God acts as much for Sarah as he does, does for this promise for Abraham. Let's look at the mending of a faith-wavering pilgrim. Verse 17. But <clears throat> the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
God inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. In the original language, this word plague is most used for skin diseases. Likely what was given to Pharaoh and his household. We're not exactly sure either how Pharaoh pieced this all together. Likely Sarai was spared um, these plagues, and so she's the kind of the outlier in the in Pharaoh's household. And so she's he's, she's probably questioned and probably says this is what's actually happened. <coughs> Either way, Pharaoh catches word of what actually has transpired, and he goes to Abraham and he says three pointed questions: What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And then he says, here is your wife. Take her and go. In other words, get out. And Abraham's silence is deafening. He doesn't say a word. One commentator put this way, this great giant of the faith had become for the present a very small man, and he felt it. Abraham is the man of promise. But in this scene, Pharaoh is more righteous than him. You ever find that? There are people who don't know Jesus, and they put you in your place, and you, you, if you're really honest with yourself, you're like, they're more righteous than me. The only thing that differentiates us from people who don't know Christ is the promises of God. We're not better. We're often worse. Like I, I routinely say, you know what the church is? It's not, it should never be filled with hypocrites because the church is filled with a bunch of people that know that they can't make it, that know that they're sinners, that know that they depend on the precious blood of Christ for their salvation or we're done for. We cling to the promises of God. We're not here because we're better than anybody. In fact, we're often worse. But we, we know we need Jesus. And that's all we've got. We've got faith. See, what are we supposed to see in this text? We're supposed to see loud and clear, bouncing off the page, Abraham is not this hero. We are supposed to see in this text that if the purposes of God are going to stand in choosing Abraham, then God must make it happen. We see where Abraham's plans get him. See, his faith was so great when God spoke to him and made him incredible promises. But when famine came and he wasn't expecting it, it tripped him up. I just want to apply this a little bit to us with the the time we have left. Firstly, we need to see that famine exposes the heart. Famine exposes the heart. Famine came, Abraham ran. How often do the cracks of unbelief begin to show in our lives when, when trials come? Just think about it with me. Think about the last difficulty, the last trial, the last crisis in your life. You think of something? At what point did you seek God in it? The answer is an indication of our trust in God or lack thereof. Did you turn to God instantly? 
eventually? Did you doubt God? Did you forget God? Did you flat out deny God? A couple more questions. What, what is the Egypt you find yourself running to repeatedly? When a famine comes, what, what, what is the Egypt? What is the, the turning from God and going your own way? What does that look like in your life? What is that thing you run to, often sin, where, that, where you're like, here's where I'll find my refuge? If it's anything other than Jesus, what, what is it? What, what, what do your patterns of sin when life gets tough expose about where your loyalties and loves lie? So let me, let me give you an example. Abraham loved safety and security. And, and we see when famine comes, he actually loves those things more than God. So he makes a plan on his own and he runs. He feared danger and so he sinned. See, difficult circumstances don't cause our sin, but by bringing our fears to the surface, they expose the idolatries in our hearts. When the difficult times come in our lives, they do not cause us to sin, but they crank up the pressure and they expose the idols in our hearts. Where we turn, what do you fear? How does that fear lead you to sin? Running when a famine comes is human nature, right? What do you do? There's no food. You scour for food. That's, that's human nature. But not the life of faith. Look, that doesn't mean that we turn off our brains, sit and do nothing, and ask God to feed us. But it means that when famine comes, we, we, we trust him and that evidences itself when we press into him all the more in those times. When famine comes, do you retreat or do you press into God all the more? We see Abraham, a great man of faith, ran when famine came. Lastly, famines not only expose the heart, but famines are a part of God's plan. This might not sit well with you, but it is a tool that God uses for our good. Famines are a part of God's plan, so expect them. Now, I, I, I recognize how that sounds. When Emily and I were engaged, people came up to us constantly and said this super annoying thing. Oh, the first year of marriage is going to be hard. Shut up. Like, don't set us up for faith. Like, we don't want to hear that. You don't know that. And then we went through the first year of marriage. We were like, hey. Look at that. It was great. Year two, terrible. Oh. <laughs> like, so I, I get that. You, you don't necessarily want to hear, famines are a part of God's plan. Expect them. Look for them around every corner. It's going to be awful. It's like, be quiet. No. Like, but, but yes, like, famine will come for you. It, it, it will inevitably come. And, and famines are a part of God's plan, and I think you need to know that. You need to really, really know that. Faith is regularly followed by famine. Not always as swiftly as it did for Abraham, but it always comes. It, it, it's God's way. Jesus' half-brother James put it this way, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that. 
the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Four years ago, I've got permission to share this. Four years ago, a police officer in our church was charged with unnecessary use of force when he was arresting uh, someone, and it wasn't true. He, he had done everything that he was trained to do, and he had done everything correctly, but he was charged and he was taken to trial. This happened four years ago, and it only resolved last week. He, he lost his pay. He lost his job. They had to sell their house and downsize so they could pay legal fees to defend truth. Uh, they uh, were in a situation, him and his wife, where his name was smeared. And just last week, when the judge gave the verdict, he was cleared of all charges. But, but just a few days before that, when they didn't know how it would go, four years of this tr literal trial, um, a few of us got together with him and his wife and their family, and we prayed together. They asked us to come. They asked us to pray with them. And uh, God just really put it on my heart, this passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul is, is pleading with Jesus, take this, take this thing from me, this thorn in my flesh, this difficulty in my life, take it from me, Jesus. And you know what Jesus says back? Jesus speaks to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And I, I told him this verse and said, man, this, this verse is so on my heart for you because I look at you and I realize you, you found a lot of identity in, in your ability to provide. And then your pay was taken away. And, and you found a lot of identity in what your job was. You put a lot of worth into that. And then your job was taken away. And what, what Jesus has been doing in your life is, is showing you that he's enough. And he looked at me and said, I came to Christ just shy of four years ago because of all this. Like when this happened to me, I came to church, he sat over there and he surrendered his life to Christ one Sunday morning. And then we, we're going around the circle, we're praying together, we're speaking truth, we're just encouragement to each other. And his wife says, these last four years have been the hardest years, but it's so strange. They've been the best years in our marriage. Now, look at me. Have you been through a trial? Have you, and, and have you able to, by, by, this, by your teeth, been able to cling to Jesus in it? Like, do you not know that that's exactly right? That is so true. Those who've been through trials know what that couple are talking about. Famines are part of God's plan for you. Thabiti Anabwile, I've been working on that all week. Thabiti Anabwile <laughs> said this, God is as sufficient with our suffering as he is with his son's blood. Fully sufficient. Your suffering, Christian, is your slave. 
Your suffering is working for you to produce an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the next time suffering comes into your room, say, welcome, my slave. Produce for me the glory that God has designed. Can I just encourage you as you... We are so pressed in this cultural moment of secularism, so pressed to disbelieve God on every front. Can I encourage you from the depths of my soul and the truths of God's word that when a trial comes and wants to pluck you from the faith, that you would look at that and say, suffering, welcome my slave. Do for me what God has prepared for you to do in my life so I can be rooted in Christ till the day he takes me home to be with him in glory for all eternity suffering you are my slave Jesus use it how you want in my life for my eternal good would you please approach suffering trials the famines of your life that way that's exactly what Romans chapter 8 wants to tell you because it asks the question who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword the answer is no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us goes on to say what we just sang before nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord do not run from God when trials come but chase God down and cling to him Our text this morning makes it clear Abraham's not the hero. The Sunday school answer is correct. Jesus is the hero. Abraham told a lie to save his own life. Jesus told the truth and it cost him his life. Abraham got tripped up when trials came. Jesus didn't get tripped up even when his trials took him to the cross. And when Jesus went out into the wilderness with no food and no water for 40 days, went into the wilderness, he didn't rely on his own devices. He didn't even succumb to the schemes of Satan for food and nourishment. What did he do? Do you know the story? Three times. He was tempted and he relied on the word of God. He spoke it. This is what Abraham did not do. He did not commune with God. He did not worship. He ran. Jesus, when he was pressed by famine, he did not relent. He relied on God. Abraham will prove to be, you're going to see it throughout this series, Abraham will prove to be a great man of faith. But here's the thing, Jesus is the perfect man of faith. And the beauty of the gospel is, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, he not only saves you, but empowers you to live a life of faith. Jesus, who is the beginning and end of faith, enables you to live by faith. He gives us grace for our failures. And the power of the Spirit as we rely on his word and wait for the fulfillment of his promises. So listen, 
when trials come and they will, when famine comes and it will, don't turn to your own resources, but to Jesus, and he will sustain you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the beginning and end of faith. Thank you for being the one that when our faith falters, yours never has, never will, and you are sufficient. Jesus, I just, I just pray with a heavy burden knowing that this church I love so much is filled with individual stories that have tragedy, trial, suffering, and hardship. And, uh, and we do not for a moment minimize the pain. But what we do, Jesus, is ask that you would help us cling to you in the midst of it. Because you are a faithful God and you will always see your children through. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.